Morning, Calvary. I love questions. Questions get to draw out from us what we're really thinking. It helps us understand what we truly believe, where we're currently at. I love asking fun questions to my kids about their preferences, what's their favorite, kind of get to know you games. Fun to play 20 questions in the car to see if they can think about the same things I'm thinking about. But there are times in my life when asking a question brought a lot of anxiety in me. I think of the times in which I had the opportunity to ask my now wife where we stood when we were dating. They call this the DTR, define the relationship. Perhaps you're in a young relationship right now and you're sitting next to him and you haven't had this talk yet and this is already bringing anxiety up in your life. But it's this moment where you've been hanging out Maybe you've, you've made a, an official proclamation of your relationship. Maybe you haven't. But finally you get the, muster, the courage to muster up this question. <sighs> Would you be my girlfriend? Would you be my boyfriend? Or maybe you've already had that question answered and you're going to be asking, Would you be my wife? Would you be my husband? And you're trying to ask a question of this other person to bring clarity to an understanding of what the relationship is. What do you believe this relationship to be? Because this is what I believe this relationship to be. And it's nerve-wracking because you might open your heart to them and say, are you thinking what I'm thinking? We should get married. And he's like, I thought we were friends. Like, oh, man, this is terrible. But there's a define the relationship conversation after spending some time together that tries to bring clarity to the parties involved. This question that Jesus is asking today is a DTR. It comes at the end of the Sermon of the Mount. People have heard his professions, what his mission statement is for his life. He's given teaching on what the kingdom is like, what the kingdom ethic is like, what is the way of the kingdom, and crowds have been drawn in. They have come to hear Jesus. At the end of all of this, with the crowd gathered He's going to ask this question to bring clarity to what is the relationship that you have with him? What is the relationship that he has with you? So we've got your Bibles going to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 46. At the conclusion of all of this great, phenomenal teaching, he ends the sermon this way. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the streams broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray for insight. Father, this is your son's conclusion to a sermon he gave, the greatest sermon ever given. Is a question for us to ponder to draw out from us what we truly believe about Jesus. 
And so would you help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear so that we would know where we stand? Father, we pray that you would just simply carry me along and help me to illuminate this text in the way that that Jesus taught it so that you would build us up as your church. In your name we pray, amen. It's quite the conclusion to a sermon. I don't think Jesus took the advice of public speakers to end with a high note, inspiration, driving somewhere. It's simply a story of two lives being built. And it concludes with one being left in ruins. Now, it's important to frame this question with the right audience. Jesus asks a lot of questions to a lot of different kind of people. Who is it that Jesus is asking this question to? This past week, the kids and I and and Kristen were up in the mountains skiing, and we were walking downtown in the mountain town, and we walked by this really cute house that had a white picket fence in front of it. And on all of the white picket posts were ski gloves, and they had all the fingers bent down except for the middle one. I was like, I, I want to meet the person that lives here. This is great. And they had a big, huge flag flying out front. Y'all are nervous. And it just said, not today, Jesus. I thought, man, that's a story I would love to jump in. But that person wants nothing to do with Jesus. Not today, Jesus. Don't don't try to bring your teaching into my life. Not today, Jesus. I don't want you in my life. This question is not to that person. There are other questions to that person that Jesus will ask. This question is to an audience that has come to him, that is listening to his teaching, that perhaps is willing to call him Lord. They're the people that show up on Sunday morning. This question is to you. This question is to me. It's those that would perhaps profess him as Lord. Why, why do you call me Lord? And there's tension here. Why do you call me something that your life does not seem in its actions to mirror? So what, what is the title Lord? Well, the title Lord is authority. If you're to call somebody a Lord, you're putting them in a place of authority over someone. The authority figure of your life. You might call the person the leader of your life. The master of your life. The owner of your life. So why do you call me the authority of your life? The owner, the director, the master of your life. And then the way in which you live doesn't follow my direction, my leading, my authority. There's there's a disconnect in what you say and what you do. Now, why is this important? It's because those who call Jesus Lord are those who are saved by him. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, He's the authority of your life, the owner of your life. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, in the Western evangelical church, that is often reduced to a simple verbal acknowledgement. He's Lord. Yeah, I call him Lord. 
And Jesus is pressing in on that, says, do you know what it means to call me Lord? You're calling me master, owner, the authority over. I get to call the shots. If you want Jesus to be the authority of your life, the owner of your life, then you'll be saved. But it's not just simply some magical formula that we say. It's proven in our life. It's shown in how we live, that we know his ways and we walk in those ways. Now, what are other ways in which people call Jesus if they're not calling him Lord? Well, many people who are first coming to him say, well, he's important. It's like every world religion has some commentary on who Jesus is, so he seems important. Others would say, well, he's, he's interesting. What a fascinating character that we would have a first century carpenter, teacher, rabbi that we can't get out of our minds 2,000 years later all over the planet. That's interesting. Some would say he's influential. Look at how he's influenced life. Look how he maybe influences parts of my life. Not the whole thing, but I, I do take his advice in areas that I appreciate. Other areas, I'm like, you know, I don't think Jesus has got the corner on the market here. And so I kind of do my thing. Some might say he's illuminating. It's so helpful to, to help him illuminate my life that I would be able to follow in that light. But he's not interested in being called those things. Another step towards him in the right direction is, well, what do you, who is Jesus to you? Well, he's my helper. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my counselor. Jesus is my advocate. Jesus is my savior. Do you know what the problem with calling him only those things is? Is you've taken Jesus to be your helper and you remain in the position of authority. So you take him to be your savior like you do an accountant. You got a savior? I got an accountant. You have a financial advisor? I got a counselor. Jesus is helping me accomplish my vision and my dreams. But there's a fundamental shift when you call him Lord. When you call him anything else, it shows that you, you have him in your life. When you call him Lord, it shows he has you. It says he has you. He's the authority, the owner, the leader of my life. And this is the great conflict is Will we remain in charge of ourselves or will we surrender our whole life to the lordship of Jesus? That's the question Jesus is asking. Why do you call me Lord and then you do not practice? You don't follow my ways. Now, this word do here is used in other places in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Greek word poeo. And you can see it just a few verses earlier in verse 43, where Jesus says, For no good tree bears, that's the word poeo. It doesn't produce, it doesn't bear bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear poeo, good fruit. It can't act outside of its nature. And so when he brings it to us, he's saying, you can't act outside of your nature what you actually believe about Jesus. And so why do you give me lip service, call me Lord, and then we don't follow? If he's the Lord, then I'm servant. If he is leader, I am follower. He gets to call the shots. And so that's the question that he's asking the Sunday morning crowd. Why do you call me Lord? And then Monday through Saturday, live as though you are the authority of your life. 
Now, at first you look at it and go, man, <laughs> the reason I'm so afraid of authority in my life is I just feel like if I'm ever in a position in which there's authority over me, I'm going to be taken advantage of. I'll be mistreated, abused. And one of the things that keeps me from Jesus is like, well, I, I just, I think that that's the kind of authority that he is. But then when you open up the Gospels and you see how he loves us, how faithful he is to us, how trustworthy he is, some of the ways in which we are reluctant to come to him begin to be resolved. We don't, we don't see him as the authority of our life because we don't fear his name. We don't trust his ways. We don't believe that he loves us enough. And the Gospels just debunk this of who God is in flesh, showing us what it would look like for us to bring our life under his rule. And it's beautiful. It's not a threat to our lives. In fact, it is what produces life itself. What would it look like for someone to take Jesus as the Lord of their life? Well, well Jesus begins to paint those familiar pictures to you. Verse 47 he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. That's, that's someone who's made Jesus the Lord. It's not that they've come to him. That's great. Like, I'm, I'm interested. And then they hear. They've listened. They haven't just rejected his teachings and left. They're, they're listening. And then they have another important practice. What is it? They poeo. They do them. This is the practice of our faith. It's not just to hear what's going on, the teaching on Sunday, but to then go practice these things. And that's what it is to have the Lord of your life. I have come to him, I listen to him, and then I poeo, I practice, I bear that teaching out in my life. And he says, okay, if you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you're wondering, what would it look like if he had the lordship of your life, if you no longer were in charge? Well, let me tell you about two builders. And there's these familiar stories in which he portrays two builders, two house builders, two foundations and a storm. In our minds, we, we sometimes, our familiarity with this doesn't breed contempt, but it does dull our senses in some way. And so a couple of things we have to understand is, what is the Jewish mind when it comes to their view of a house? What is the Jewish mind when it comes to this idea of fools and wise people? And what comes to the Jewish mind in Jesus' teaching when he talks about these flood waters? And so the first we talk about is these houses. That these, these, both of these people are building houses. They're, they're both doing the same endeavor. Now in the Jewish mind, they don't think of a house like you and I think of a house. We think of it as a commodity to use, perhaps for financial gain, an asset to leverage. We'll sell it, move to another place. That's not in the Jewish mind. A Jewish mind is not a single family dwelling, our house is not a single family dwelling. It is a generational place of life. And so if you were to build a house for you and your spouse, you would attach that to your family house. Multiple generations would live with you. In fact, that would be the, probably the, the source of your business. You would do business as a, either a shepherd, a carpenter, out of your house. And so what you see is actually the house is equal to life. It's the fullness of life. The, the generation before you, your current life, the generations after you, your financial outlook, your securities, what life will be for your family. Everything is wrapped up in this house. And so when Jesus is talking about two people building their house, really what he's talking about is two people building their life. And everyone in this room is building a life. I'm building a life. You're building a life. 
You're building a business. You're trying to build financial stability. Just say, okay, there's two people and they're building a house and you can't actually tell the difference in the houses. They look the same. Everyone, everyone here, like, yeah, we're all Christians, right? We're here on Sunday morning, I think. I can't really tell right now. You drive through Erie and all the houses, they kind of look the same. There's just one difference. It's what they're built on, Jesus is saying. There's a foundational difference in these houses that you'll only know when the floodwaters show up. And there's two people in this story, and there's probably two people in this room who are building. There's the wise builder and there's the fool. Now, this is a famous description of people used in the Proverbs, in the wisdom literature of the scriptures. Proverbs opens up with the fool. The fool despises knowledge. They hate insight. They do not like being corrected. The fool is wise in their own eyes. Their ways are the right ways. They do not want to know other ways compared to the wise. The wise fear God. The wise love instruction, love insight. The, the, uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 describes this as basically a departure, a fork in the road, who you want to be. He says the, the wise... Turn to the right. The fool turns to the left. Like, you don't get to be a wise and fool. It's like you get to decide which way you're going to build your life. So the wise, we would describe as the person who loves enlightenment, loves insight, loves knowledge, loves teaching, loves correction. The fool, as described in the Proverbs so colorfully, is like a dog returning to its vomit so the fool goes back to his folly. He's never learning. In the ultimate sense, the wise man is interested in the ways of God and the fool is not. And so he says, okay, the wise man, they're both building their lives. The wise man says, I hear the teachings of Jesus and I'm going to build my life, my whole life, my whole house my family, my marriage, my children, my finances, my future, my health, the generations on the teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, why would you do that? Well, he says, because there's a storm coming. Now, what's in the Jewish mind of, of these floods is Jesus is teaching in the Judean area. Maybe it's around the Qumran community. I don't know. But if you go there, there it's like a desert land. And there are these dry riverbeds that look like water should be coming through, but it's so dry, like there's no water showing up until suddenly in a moment, a flash flood does. It's famous for these flash floods that come in from the Judean hillside in the west where it rains. And there's so much water there that the earth can't saturate, sorry, it's so dry it can't pick it up fast enough. And so it rushes down into these dry riverbeds. And it washes away anything that is not built on a foundation. And so for, for Jesus' audience, they're, they're immediately knowing what he's talking about. For, for my mind, I, I got to be a home builder for many years in Southern California. And we would build monstrosities of houses, like 20,000 square foot, 30,000 square foot homes. And they would be on the waterfront. 
And, people, and so you'd meet with the engineers and the architects and you would see this beautiful house drawn up. One guy's house we built on the waterfront so that at high tide at times, the water would rush up against the, the glass that we had built for his racquetball court at the lowest level. That's cool, huh? How do you make sure that house doesn't go anywhere? Like you're investing so much money. It's so valuable to you. That's your life. And California is known for, similar to Israel, lots of water, lots of mudslides, lots of rain that can wash things away. And so if you're going to build your life there, the first thing you would do for probably a year and a half is, is build a foundation. And you would drill, and we would attach that house to bedrock. And you got to drill 30 feet or more. That's like it's from the ground here to the ceiling. These holes, they're like 8 feet in diameter, 30 plus feet deep. And then what you would do in this hole is it's called a caisson, is that we would actually tie together steel. Number 8 bar, about, you know, Size about, about an inch, or eight bar is, number, is an inch thick. And this number eight bar would build these caissons, which are these like cages. And then a crane would come and, and drop this caisson down inside the hole. And then we would put an I-beam in the middle of that cage. And then we'd pour the whole thing full of concrete. One gentleman's house, we put 30 caissons of those into bedrock. Why do you do that? It's so that it will survive storms. The whole idea is to preserve your life. And what Jesus is saying is, okay, there's wise builders and there's a foolish builder and they're both building a life and you can't tell the difference. They both got a deck, they've got awnings, they got patio furniture out there, they're, they're projecting their life on social platforms and it all looks beautiful. Until, until, the rains come until in a sudden moment, what was a dry riverbed becomes a flash flood and they didn't expect it. And it tests the integrity of the life. And those who have built their life on the foundation of Jesus Christ survive the storm. Now, there's work there. There's intention there. There's action there. That's the doing part. You see that? The wise builder, he dug deep and he built well on a foundation. The wise builder knows this, is that they are an inadequate foundation for their life. They must find something outside of themselves to build their life on. That's why we call Jesus Lord, is I'm a bad foundation to build my life on. I'm not a good authority. I'm not a good ruler of my own life. There are decisions that I have made that have hurt my own life. I don't love myself well. I don't rule myself well. And to build my life on the foundation of Jesus Christ is to take his authority, which is so much better than mine. His leadership is so much better than mine. And build my life there. So that when the storms of life show up, my life would be preserved. Amen. Now, the, the storms of life are the immediate sense of this. And when the storms show up, everybody's foundation gets exposed. Here at Calvary, I can't actually really tell where you're building your life. I can't. 
But then I see storms show up in your life. And it exposes our foundations, doesn't it? Now, what I love is the Bible is, is totally honest with us. Jesus is honest with us. Do storms hit both these houses? Absolutely. There are many Christians that, that believed in Jesus Christ because they thought, if I accept Jesus, there won't be problems in my life. And then when problems come in their life, they're like, what good is Jesus? Jesus doesn't promise you that. Well, Jesus is saying, hey, storms are going to come in everyone's life. Like Christians, non-Christians, you're going to get cancer. Christians, non-Christians, there's going to be tragedy. Christians, non-Christians, you're going to get older. Christians, non-Christians, there's going to be hardship. So why Jesus? It's so that when the storms come, it won't lay your life to, how's the end it? Ruin. The whole purpose is that he loves you and wants to preserve you through the hardships of life. And so when the hardships show up, we all get exposed for the foundation that we're building on. And any foundation that is not Christ leaves us vulnerable to ruin. And so the question in part is like, can you call me Lord, Lord? You don't do what I'm, what I'm calling you to do, so what foundation are you building on? And that's a question for us today. What, what foundation are you really building on, your life on? Is it, is it your youthfulness? That's going to go quick. Good looks? Those fade. A position at work? Is it your health? Is it your sexual fulfillment? But not worthy foundations. And so when the hardships and storms of life come, it will lay your life that you're trying to build, just like the next person, trying to build to ruin. Jesus is asking this not because, hey, I said I was the boss. How come you're not following? He's saying, hey, hey, I'm the Lord. How come we're not building? So you build your life on my words so that you would be preserved through the storms. Now, the storms of life are simply the immediate sense of what's in Jesus' teaching. But there is an ultimate sense that Jesus is knowing, Jesus knows that we will all experience. This comes from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is paralleling those who were under the law of Moses, following the law, and were not obedient to the better covenant that we have, the teachings and covenant of Jesus Christ, and a storm that's coming. It's brewing right now. And he wants you to be aware of it. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 25, he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. That's forever. Therefore, knowing a storm is coming, knowing that he's going to shake the heavens and the earth so that everything that cannot be shaken will remain, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom, a foundation that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship and re with reverence and awe. For our God 
is a consuming fire. And a consuming fire does two things. It consumes the imperfections, the impurities, the things that need to be removed, and it refines what is valuable and precious, what will remain. And so if you know this storm's coming, and the only foundation that will survive this storm is the life that is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, let us build our lives on Jesus and make him our Lord, our Lord. The one we say, you are the authority over all areas of my life. You call the shots, I will follow. You give directions and I will go. For I know your foundation is trustworthy and true. The only difference is this. Those who come and hear and leave are those who do not build their life on the foundation. Those who come, hear, and do are those that build their life on the foundation. It's the practice of these things. The, the teaching of these things, the informing you of these things is not complete in the transforming of your life, in the building of your life. You have to go and do these things. 35 minutes with, with us together around the scriptures is not sufficient in building your life. You have to go practice these things. Monday through Saturday, practice the ways of Jesus. Here's, here's how I know this is true. Three weeks ago, we talked about anxiety. Did you guys get rid of it all? It's like, come on, we already talked about it. Why are you still doing it? Last week, Mark did a great job talking about greatness. You guys done struggling with greatness now? No. It's who hears and puts these things into practice. Poeo, bears fruit. That's the one whose life is being built on this. And one of the things that's so important, and I mentioned this earlier in this sermon in first service, but many of us think that there's no room for mistakes then. So, well, if I ever do something wrong or an error, then it really just shows that Jesus isn't my Lord. That's not true. If, if we say we're without sin, then we make him out to be a liar, and the truth is not in us, so we don't pretend to be anything that we're not. But what, what do people who make mistakes do if Jesus is their Lord? What's the next step of following him? That's right. Confessing, repentance, not hiding it, making it known, dealing with the consequences. That's what it looks like even in our failures to follow him in his lordship. So let me just ask you this question. This is where I want to be. Is there, are there any areas in your life in which you are reluctant or are refusing to bring under the authority of Jesus? What areas in your life are you saying, I'll, I'll still be Lord. I'll still call the shots. I'll still be in charge. This question is a question for us so that what would surface in us are the areas in our life in which we have not brought under the lordship of Jesus. And the invitation is to once again come to him and say, Lord, I surrender everything. I trust you with my whole life, the whole house. I'm building it on you so that the storms of life and the storm that's coming 
will not leave me in ruin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you give us a foundation on your son, Jesus Christ, that is unshakable, that helps us to navigate the hardships of life. So, Father, I pray for anyone in this room that does not know you yet as Lord, who has been interested in you but has not surrendered themselves to you, that has taken parts of you but have not given themselves to you, would wait no longer. Father, I pray that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus would be the Lord of their life and that they believe in their heart the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, through the grave. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us day by day, moment by moment, surrender ourselves anew to you, our Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.